All right, let's go. Good morning. All right, welcome home. It's now time for Children's Church. If you're fortunate enough to be between the ages of three and fifth grade, you may escape this message and go to a far better one upstairs. God bless you. That is not the future of the church. That is the church right there. We love them and we care about them and you too. All right, all right. Good to see you. Good to see you. I need to clarify that the Bethany Beluga's co-ed team on Tuesday night played ferociously against the best team in the world. And we just lost by that much. And that statement is very appropriate given that we're in the second week of our new series, True Lies. Um, um, In True Lies, we are investigating some commonly held beliefs um, that sound good, but are in effect really false. And, And the danger here is that if we really buy into these true lies, um, that, um, that it can really ruin our life and our faith and, and really set us off course. So we're, we're investigating another one uh, today, and we will each week during the series. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22. If you don't have a Bible, you'd like to use one, um, check under one of the seats in front of you. Um, we've got some Bibles there. Uh, those, if you don't own one, we want you to. And that is yours to keep free because of the generosity of the people here. So great. Uh, if, you, if you turn there, Proverbs chapter 22, we're going to get there in a moment. Hold your finger there. Um, but first, I need to make some of you really good, Nancy. Um, a program note before we dive in. Uh, had a lot of questions last week about our, our first installment in the series, which was Everything Happens for a Reason right? A lot of questions. I think we'll probably have a lot of questions about this week and probably throughout the series. So what I'd ask you to do is to take your questions. You can ask them to me anytime, but um, if you would be kind enough to email them to me uh, at tburgraph at gmail.com. That's how you spell it. Um, My wife and I have been married almost 25 years, and, and she still misspells it a little bit. But so there you have it. Or you can go to the website on my staff page, on on my page in the staff section, and it gives you an opportunity to just click on that, and it'll send me an email. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is what I'm thinking is we'll probably have questions throughout the series, and if there are some that are particularly um, repetitive and, and are on a lot of people's hearts, I'm thinking toward the end we'll do just one message on Q&A for True Lies, and we'll clear up clear up some things that are still out there. So uh, please send your questions and we'll get them answered. Um, I expect a ton of pushback and resistance for this particular one because it's so deeply rooted in our Christian culture, although it has no biblical support. So hang with me and try not to throw things, spit, or walk out um, and we'll be good. This is the lie we're looking at this week. Are you ready for it? Here it is. Here it is. A Christian home guarantees Christian kids. Sounds good, not true. Sounds good, not true. Now, 
I know you've got some scriptural things that, that you're thinking about, and I am too, and we're going to take a look at that. And I, but I'm really, I'm really not sure why um, anyone who is a parent um, thinks that we have that much influence over our children. And I'm thinking now about our son, Tommy, who is in Chicago, so let's talk about him. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm remembering times um, when he was two years old, he began by uh, baptizing our cordless phone in the pretty blue toilet water. Should have known he'd grow up and be a Baptist. Uh, at, the age, at the age of five, we're living in New Orleans. He had just seen the movie The Karate Kid. Uh, we take him to the grocery store, to the produce section, and he walks up, right, you know the story. He walks up to this very nice Asian family while half of the grocery store looks on. He does this. Right, right. He's 10, and we move here, and um, we... we are now living here, and we take him to the Walmart, and um, we heard the scariest thing that parents can ever hear over the loudspeaker. Will the parents of Tommy Burgraff please come to electronics immediately? Now, Shree and I are fearing that he's tried to steal something. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. This happened to be their one-year anniversary of their opening, and they're celebrating in high style. Helium balloons all over the place. Tommy thinks it would be cool to talk like one of the munchkins from The Wizard of Oz. So he sucks down four of them and passes out. On the way down, has taken out the whole wall of the cell phone display. And they call us to come claim our child. He was okay. But at the age of 10 became a substance abuser. Right? So we may not have as much influence over our kids as we'd like to think. I'd like you to meet two couples. Two couples. I need you to remember them because we're going to be referring back to them throughout the course of the message, okay? Meet the Greens. The Greens are a devoted Christian couple, always look forward to being parents. They have two kids. They have a daughter who is 25 and a son who is 22. Their daughter is doing so well, so well. She's married to a wonderful guy, talented artist. She's a great new mom of a daughter, um, and they're, they're doing well. They're struggling financially, but they're active in their church, and she's walking with the Lord, and everything's going well. Not so much with her brother. Um, the green son, who is 22, has taken a very different path. Their son um, found trouble wherever it was um, living, in, throughout high school, and some places um, he just invented it um, and got through a lot of trouble. Right after graduation from high school, uh, he sort of disappeared uh, and went traveling and uh, ended up in jail. 
um, that was his first of three trips there, um, is rejecting anything to do with God, uh, can't keep a relationship with any, anything uh, except drugs, and uh, every, everything he does seems to bring hurt and destruction upon himself. Um, and, and they're torn apart by it, torn apart. Um, and, and as far as the faith that he was raised in, um, pretty much rejects it entirely. The Greens believe that the Bible teaches that a Christian home guarantees Christian kids. And so as a result of that, they are racked with guilt. Racked with guilt. They are so convinced that they have blown it and that God is angry at them as parents who, who are responsible for um, their son's choices, right? And so they're racked with guilt because they're, they feel like failures. And a lot of people in their church feel the same way. And although they don't come right out and, and say it, um, they kind of look down on the greens because um, in their hearts and, and, and behind closed doors, they're saying, yeah, if they had only had a more godly influence on him, he wouldn't have turned out that way. The greens have guilt. The greens have a lot of guilt. Apparently, they didn't go to a church like this one where we affirm all the time that there were no perfect people. And as an example of that, you chose me as your pastor. Okay? No perfect people. Just a perfect God. And he's the hope for all of us. Different symptoms, same disease. Same hope. Greens have guilt. Across the town, there's another Christian couple. They are the hunters. They have a daughter whose life became somewhat of a train wreck in college. She lost interest in everything that used to bring her joy. She dropped out. She moved in with a guy they've never met but have heard about. Um, She parties incessantly and has no interest in following Jesus as she was raised. But the hunters are different from the greens. The hunters have incredible hope. They believe that God has promised that because they raised their daughter right, in a faithful home, that no matter what, she'll come back. She has to. God has promised it. The hunters have hope. Okay, similar situations. The greens have guilt, and the hunters have hope. Which couple is right? Neither. Neither. Is a trick question. I'm all about that. Two sets of parents, two rebellious kids. The Greens are racked with guilt because they're sure that they have failed as Christian parents. The Hunters are just so hopeful because they're sure that kids raised in a Christian home will one day come back to faith in Jesus, and they're sure they've done it right. Who's right? Neither. Both believe a Christian home guarantees Christian kids. And that's simply not true. I I sense that some of you are sitting up a little straighter, getting a little tense, pushing back a little bit, and about to lose it. Because I just challenged something that you think is biblical. It's biblical. So let's look at a well-known passage in the Bible, which some of you may have been thinking about since you knew what the, what, what the topic was, okay? And this is the source of this Christian urban myth. 
Let's take a look. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6. Ryan, if you bring that up, thanks. I'd ask you to read it with me like we did last week, okay? We'll go slow, okay? They're small words, though. Ready? Here we go. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, most people think this verse is a promise from God that every child raised in a Christian home will come back to Jesus eventually, regardless of the path that their life takes, regardless of the path that they choose. But that's not a promise from God, and that's not what it says. What do you mean that's not a promise from God? No spitting. No spitting. First, let's agree that every promise from God in the Bible is ironclad. It is ironclad. It is bulletproof. You can take that check to the bank and cash it. God never reneges on a promise. God never goes back on his word. Absolutely not ever. Not ever. So what do you mean this is not a promise? Well, it helps us to look at the name of the book that this verse is in. Proverbs. This is a proverb and not a promise. Well, what does that mean? It means that a proverb is a God-breathed piece of wisdom about generally how life works out usually. Generally, how life works out Usually. Say, no, you're not taking the Bible literally. Well, yes, I am. But you can't read historical narrative the same way you read prophecy. And you can't read prophecy the same way you read uh, epistles. And you can't read epistles the same way you read proverbs. And it's all about the genre. And a proverb is about how it's God-breathed. Yes, it is true. Yes, it is from the heart of God about how life generally works most of the time, but not all of the time, not always. So not many kids, not most, if they're raised to love the Lord, are going to depart from it. Now, that's why the Greens' guilt, remember the Greens? That's why their guilt is so unfounded. Their out-of-control son is no more proof that being, of being a bad parent than the accidental death of a high school kid who is really active in the youth group and, and very faithful is proof that they had some kind of secret, hidden, wicked life. It's no more proof of that. Now, the Greens may have done everything right or most things wrong. The point is that the choice and lifestyle of their grown son prove neither. Prove neither. He will have to answer to God for his life, just as they will have to answer to God for the kind of parents they were, not how their son turned out. I'd like to thank um, Pastor Larry Osborne for his writings on this subject, which have helped me uh, best understand um, what I'm about to share with you. Um, Do you get the difference about them being responsible for the parents they were, but not how their son turned out. Do you get the difference? You're nodding and your eyes are saying yes. But I really wonder if all of us are really buying into that concept that the way their son turns out 
does not necessarily reflect on whether they parented the way God instructed them to or not. I really wonder if we buy into that. Here's why. How many times have you gone out to eat and you see a toddler throwing a, an ear-splitting, fall on the floor and do the gator, um, red-faced tantrum, right? It's fun <laughs> to see if it's not your kid, all right? And you thought to yourself or said, Gee, Marge, that's a great set of parents. They probably let that kid run the house. Too bad they didn't raise their kids like we did. Oh, nobody's ever thought that. Okay, not the Marge part, but the rest of it, right? Or you, maybe you do it with a, with a middle schooler that you know who's um, getting tangled up in drugs or a high schooler who is sexually active. Hmm. It's a shame they didn't have more of a godly influence over their kids. That wouldn't happen. That wouldn't happen. If they had some decent Christian parents, well, maybe so. But maybe not. Here's something that's not PC. And since I'm not popular or hung up on that, I'll share it with you anyway because I love you. Um, Maybe he or she is just a bad kid. There's no bad kids. And there's no bad dogs. Really? Really? Have you ever left the house? Have you ever met my dog, Quiche? She's a bad dog. And without a doubt, not a Christian. No. I'm serious. I'm serious. Here's the good news. Jesus loves bad kids. Here's the good news if you're like me. Jesus loves bad adults. And he is the only one who can transform hearts and change bad into good. He is the only one who can transform hearts and change bad into good. We can't do it by calling one thing the other. In a sense, we're all bad kids. Do you get that? He's our only hope. Your life, my life, is never going to be a fulfillment of the law. His is. And he offers it to us. That's our only hope. And when we judge parents by the kids... We're making the assumption, the wrong assumption, that a Christian home guarantees Christian kids. Here's a question. Whatever happened to free will? Whatever happened to free will? You want it for yourself, right? Don't you? Don't you want to know? You want the choice of whether to go home and eat there or go to the W and get the double order of the biscuits and gravy? Crispy hash browns? And everything else, right? You want free will for yourself. God wants it for you. God wants it for your kids. See, the free will that makes our affection for him, our love for him precious and meaningful and not robotic and automatic, well, that free will also makes room for rebellion and rejection. And they have it. 
We all do. We all do. Um, let's read the verse together again and, and ask an important question. Okay, let's reload and redo it. Ready? Go with me. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Okay. Now, because of their misunderstanding in this verse, the hunters have this great hope that their wayward daughter will one day return to Jesus. But this is not something God has promised anywhere in the Bible, including this verse. We'll take a closer look, see if you agree. See if you agree. Here's the question. How in our minds, how in our minds did will not depart become will return? How in our minds did the words will not depart become will return? If you think about that, I can't for the life of me find anything in that verse that says that someone returning to Jesus is guaranteed, especially after a period of rebellion. I just don't get how this, how this is a promise that a rebellious kid raised in a Christian home will have a, an eventual return to Jesus. I, I fully get why we would wish and hope that that's what it says, but that's not what it says. That's not what it says. In fact, it kind of says the opposite. It kind of says that most of them won't depart ever. Won't depart. And while Jesus is all about loving people who need to return, and I among them, in, in small ways, in daily ways, in big ways, and all of us, don't misinterpret this verse. We'll see what it leads to. If you want to blame someone, don't blame me. Um, you can blame B.F. Skinner because um, he's dead. Um, B.F. Skinner was a behavioral social uh, philosopher, professor of psychology at Harvard until 1974. His ideas have shaped many of the modern concepts of raising children. And Skinner came up with the concept of radical behaviorism, which basically believes that each child is born as a blank slate. And we can then influence them in any direction that we wish, depending on what we reinforce and we have the proper rewards and stimuli. Sounds like the dog whisperer, right? We have a blank slate and we can make children into whatever we wish as long as we have the right rewards and stimuli. Problem is, it's not true. Now, I don't know, I didn't do the research to find out if Skinner was a parent, if he was a father, but it seems to me that the only thing that you need to do to debunk the blank slate theory is to have two kids. Right? Completely different. We ordered them the same. We made them the same. What happened? They seem pre-wired. They are. They're different. And if you're one of those people who got that big red book, and here's what you do in every situation, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you, oh, yeah. And this is what you do. This is the book. And it says that 
everybody. It's different. It's different, but we have some, some commonality. We have some commonality. Here we go. Even the perfect parenting can create sinful kids. If you need proof, to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. God creates Adam and Eve. He is the best father, the best parent ever. Gives them every affection, every support, every encouragement, every blessing. And he's not one of those ones. He's got a million rules. One rule. What do they do? Rebel. Right? Perfect parenting, rebellious kids. Do we need any more proof? If the perfect father can have a rebellious child, do you think that could possibly happen to you and to me? Oh, you bet. You bet. And then Adam and Eve go on and have two kids. And the bad one kills the good one. We are messed up. Every single one of us, right? Every one of their descendants, you, me, Lady Gaga, we're all born with this sinful nature. We're on the wrong track, baby. We were born that way. Are you following me? Okay, some of you younger ones, I need a little affirmation here. Trying to bring the cultural relevance. We're inclined, all of us, to being self-centered. We're inclined, all of us, by nature and by choice, to be attracted to the things that destroy us. We're inclined, all of us, to be prone to rebellion. Our hearts are idol factories. And Jesus is our only hope. How great is it that he loves bad kids? How great is it that he came, left his throne in glory, was born in a manger, came on a rescue mission for you and for me? How great is it that he lived the perfect godly life that you and I wish we could live but could never live? How great is it that he took all of our sins, even at our worst, upon himself, and when we were at our worst, loved us the best, and went to the cross in our place for our sins as our substitute and died there to take away their power and their punishment. How great is it that on Easter morning he rose again to new life and now offers that new life to us and his record of obedience. It's so wonderful. As C.S. Lewis wrote, the Son of God became man so that man might become Son of God. That's the gospel. That's how much Jesus loves us. That's wonderful. And we've all got to do it. We've all got to make that decision. We've all got to step over that line for ourselves. I did a funeral. I did a funeral some time ago. And a woman called me up um, and said, can you do a funeral for my father? Now, I didn't know the woman, I didn't know the family, I didn't know the father, but, you know, if they're reaching out, if, if they're hurting, I'll, I'll, I want to help. I want to be a blessing. Um, and so I asked her just a few questions. I said, um, was your dad a believer? <clears throat> and she says, well, I'm not really sure what you mean by that question. I said, was your dad a, a Christian? Was he a follower of Jesus Christ? She says, well, 
His grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. Let's just put it that way. And I thought about somebody saying something like, oh, grandfather was a Presbyterian minister. That probably takes care of your whole family tree for like 10 generations, right? But I didn't say that. I think, some, I, think I said something closer to okie dokie then. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, very thoughtful, very articulate. God has no grandchildren. God has no great-grandchildren. We need to each become his child. Um, one by one. Um, and this woman's assumption, God bless her, was not any more absurd than when we rest our thoughts on that uh, a Christian home always guarantees Christian kids. But Christian parenting matters. It's our sacred responsibility. It's still the best way to influence your kids for Jesus. Um, so the first part of that verse says, train up a child in the way he should go. So before we close, um, just a few thoughts, a few minutes on how we can best do that. One, make your home love-filled. What I mean by that, make sure your kids know deeply and experience regularly the incredible love that Jesus has for them regardless of their performance, regardless of their behavior. Don't just tell them, show them by the way you lavishly love them independent of whether they're pleasing you or not pleasing you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Don't just set up a bunch of moralistic rules with Bible verses attached to them because rules without relationship equals rebellion, right? Right. The love has got to be there. Make it a love-saturated home. Number two, make sure you have a joy-filled home. Let your children see every day, in every way, that you and your spouse, if you have one, get your greatest joy out of loving and serving Jesus and other people. Your greatest joy is in loving Jesus and serving him and other people. Because if you get your greatest joy from something else, then what we're teaching our kids is that their greatest joy lives in something else. Lives in something else. And what we're left with... Um, Let's go back. What is the thing you most encourage in your kids? What is the thing you most encourage and demonstrate is important to your kids? Is it uh, academic accomplishment or athletic achievement? Both of which are good things. Both of which are good things. But is that the thing that you most encourage and give your money and, and your time and, and your effort to? Because if that is, then those good things have become ultimate things, and that's a bad thing. We need to most encourage joy in, in loving Jesus and being loved by him. Otherwise, what we give our kids is dry religion. And dry religion, we see it here in every freshman class um, that comes into Western. Dry religion will never be able to compete with the lure of sin in the world. Never be able to compete with it. Can't hold a candle to it. A love relationship with the living Christ can not only compete with the lure of sin in the world, it will put it on its backside every time. Crush it. That is the hope. That is the joy. 
That is the life. Finally, make sure you have a broken home. Wait a minute. It's not what it sounds like. Make sure your kids see you as an example of continual brokenness and repentance. That's what I mean. The problem is we are not real fond of teaching our kids how to repent by example. You ever seen mom or dad come up to the front of the church because they need prayer? You ever seen them broken over the condition of their own hearts? Have you or I ever gone to our kids um, when we've blown it and, and repented to them because the parents with kids that have gone another direction, you desperately want to make sure that they know how to come home. That is the definition of repentance, right? And how will they know that if they've never seen me do it? To God and to them. You do that, they won't respect you. Buddy, they don't respect you. And they know you're broken. It's when I know I'm broken, I say, Quincy, my job is to be a picture of Jesus Christ to you. And I was not that. You deserve that. He deserves that. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I want to be the father and the Christian that you deserve as your daddy. That's hard. But if you have a wayward kid, the thing you most hope is that they know how to come home. And how will they know how to do it if they've never seen you and I do it? Spiritually speaking, don't be so interested in teaching your kid how to parallel park until they know how to do a U-turn. You feel me? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, well, my daddy never did, and that turned out fine. You sure about that? So who are you? Where are you this morning? Are you like the Greens? You're faithful. You're broken, but you're faithful. And you're a Christian parent. And you've done your best, and you've prayed. And you have a wayward kid. Maybe this is the first time you've heard this. But you need to. It's not your fault. Get free. Repent of all of that wrong thinking and come be free and healed of that. Maybe you're the person who's got a lot of pride. Your kids turned out great. They're doing great. It's because of your great parenting. Yeah, maybe so. But probably not. Each one of us who belongs to Christ belongs to Christ because of his great grace and mercy. Thank God every day that in spite of your brokenness, he's given you kids that love him. Maybe you're racked with guilt that's deserved. And you've hurt your kids. You see some of their shortcomings in your own life alive and well in theirs. God loves you. It's the same. Come home. 
Repent of that. Get set free of that. Trust in his grace and mercy. Lastly, maybe you're that kid. Doesn't matter if you're young or you're grown up. You're the one who, um, who needs to come home. Maybe you blame your parents for your choices. You might want to look up Ezekiel 18.20. That doesn't really fly very well with God. Maybe you're the kid who's pushing the limits a little because you feel somewhat secure because your parents are Christians. That won't help you. Your relationship with Jesus Christ is, is on you, not on them. We need to all repent and throw ourselves in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And there is great hope. Why? Because Jesus loves your wayward kid more than you do. He grieves over them more than you do. And he wants them home even more than you do. Let's pray.